We're in Esther 8 tonight. We're going to get the 8th chapter done, I believe. And we are uh, on part 7. And what we're going to do is we're going to get into some things here after this chapter where we're going to take a break, not to leave Esther, but to expand on what Esther's talking about that I think is something very, very important. And that is something called a replacement or... Um, kind of a, a dual covenant theology. And that is that there is a promise for Israel, and then there's a promise for the church, the Gentiles, and that somehow they're different. Now that is a very, very common, I would say most common theme that is in Christianity today. More so than replacement theology? I would say more so than replacement theology, absolutely. Replacement theology is a big one, and they can be connected, but ultimately what they're going to say is the reason that we don't have to do some of the things in the Old Testament is that was for the Jew. Okay, but the Gentiles, the church has a different set of rules. If you're a Jew that's even Messianic, yeah, that's fine for you to maybe celebrate a Seder meal, but that's not for us. That kind of thing will be the dual covenant. We will get into that more next week and so we'll just touch on it at the end of this one this week but just to give you kind of a a road map of where we're headed so let's get started here in chapter 8 verse 1 it says this that same day king ahasuerus gave queen esther the estate of haman the enemy of the jews now keep in mind where we're coming from here is we have just seen that Haman's plot has been exposed. Esther has said this vile Haman, he's the one that's trying to wipe me and my people out. Haman has been, uh, his mouth has been covered, he's been taken out, and he has now been hung on the gallows. And so now the king is giving the estate of Haman to Queen Esther. The enemy, or uh, yeah, King Xerxes gave it to him. And it says, Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So, remember that Haman is a picture of the devil. He has a kingdom. We've talked about this in weeks past. That it was not an empty threat in Matthew chapter 4, when he goes to Yeshua and says, All these kingdoms I will give to you if you will simply bow down before me. That when we were in the Garden of Eden and Adam sinned, before he sinned, he had complete dominion. When he sinned, that dominion was given to the devil. And that remains his dominion until it's going to be taken away from him and given back to who? Us. We inherit the kingdom of God. Esther is a picture of Israel and the church. So, that is what's going on here. The other thing is we see that Esther now told the king how he was related to her. How Mordecai was related to her. How are you getting to heaven? Through Jesus. And you're going to go before the Father and you're going to claim the blood of Jesus. The blood of Yeshua. You're going to say, I know him. And he's going to say, yes, I, I know you. 
And ultimately, it's that relationship that we have with Jesus is what's getting the king to give access to us to be in his presence. It's that confession. Yeah, listen, I claim Mordecai. He's my, my father, Esther would say in a sense, you know. But that's what we're saying. I claim Jesus and nothing but. Because otherwise you think, all right, they've been saved. What's the point of Esther really doing this? Because she is confessing a relationship. And that is what we will do as well. When you go stand before the judge, you're not going to be saying, I did this and I did that, and you know, I, I think I really belong in here because of anything but the blood of Jesus. You're going to lay all of the things you did down, and you're going to say, Thank you, Jesus. So it's interesting, Mordecai is going to receive the credit for all of the salvation that's going on here. Not Esther. Esther is the one that went before the king. Esther is the one that prepared the banquet. Esther is the one that did everything, but she's not getting the credit. Mordecai is going to. That's the same for us. You deserve no credit. None of us deserve any credit. It's all him, all Yeshua. Matthew 23, 37, here we see Jesus saying that we will not go to heaven until we confess, ultimately. Confess our relationship with him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Abah Hashem. Blessed is the name. Blessed are you, O Lord God, Adonai. Someday they're going to say that, and when we claim that, that's the ticket. Anyway, verse 2. The king then took off his signet ring. Remember, a signet ring is a picture of authority, not just a picture. It was the authority. You made you know, any kind of uh, decree or whatever, you signed it with the signet ring. Took it off. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and he presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther doesn't get the ring. Mordecai, a picture of Yeshua, is the one that gets the ring. Because all authority on heaven and earth isn't given to the church. It is given to Yeshua. And that's exactly what we see here. The authority... Let me just uh, give you some verses here showing that reclaiming of authority from the devil. Revelation 11, we see at the seventh trumpet. We've talked about this a number of times, but the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. And we'll continue, but notice this. The kingdom of the world, that's the devil, right? 
the devil, the prince of this world, John says, now stands condemned. It's not until this point that you might say the signet ring of the king, that God's the author of creation. He's the one that gave Satan it to begin with. He's taking that ring back off of the devil. Why? Because he's going to then reward the saints. It continues and it says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now, he's not talking about global warming here either. He's talking about the souls of men that they went after because what was earth created for? For you. It was, in ha it was created ultimately for God's glory. And so that's what he's talking about, destroying the earth, the devil. Like we see this in Revelation 18 and 16 where the devil is going out. He's the one who has corrupted this earth with all of the evils that have been here since Cain and Abel. And we are waiting for our king to come back and rule with peace, which will come in later. Mark 1 verse 27 says, just speaking of this authority of God again, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives order to impure spirits and they obey him. When Jesus came, he came with authority. Now, I often use this too because I want you to understand that right now, even today, even though the seventh trumpet hasn't come, that the devil still is the prince of this world. I want you to understand that there are two kingdoms right now. There will be one in the future, but right now there are two kingdoms. And you have been given authority in the kingdom of Jesus through his word. We have the authority to speak with authority when we use God's word. That is our authority, Jesus. Matthew 7 Verse 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Teachers of the law? I mean, these are your pastors. Today, especially, we see many pastors who do not speak with authority. Who speak with the... the a forked tongue, who speak things that contradict the word of God, who speak of things that are culturally acceptable but biblically an abomination. And we should be able to speak with authority of the word of God, not as the pastors of today who are preaching critical race theory or homosexuality is okay or any of these other crazy things that are out there. We could go a long, long list. 
But if we speak from the word of God, we should speak with authority. Not with this beating around the bush, watered down, you know, culturally acceptable message. Matthew 28:16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you might look at that and say, Okay, all authority has been given to Jesus, Yeshua, then how come the devil is still prince of this world? He's just standing condemned. The same way that King Ahasuerus was always in charge ultimately, but he had given authority to Haman. Right? Haman had authority, but it was the authority only given to him by the king. We're going to talk more about it. We've talked a little bit about it already, but the whole point is, is that even... We see the devil right now has been given that authority by God. And we see it in Revelation where all, you know, it says authority was given to the dragon to go after God's people. When we read that in chapter 12, I think, 12 or 13. And so, yes, God has the authority, but part of his plan, and it's not our job to understand his plan fully. He has rules that he abides by. He cannot lie. He cannot be unloving. He cannot be unjust. There are spiritual rules. And I don't know what all of them are. Today we watched uh, Daniel Joseph and he was talking about Balaam. And I thought it was a very good message. We see Balaam, remember that whole story uh, of Balak and Balaam. And Balak sends messengers to get Balaam to come and curse Israel. And I was talking with my girls afterwards about this, that Balaam was an ungodly prophet. He was not a prophet of God, but he knew of God. And they showed some testimonies of satanic worshipers who used to worship the devil. And they would see the power that the devil had. They could bring curses on people. They would go and pronounce curses on people and in 30 days they'd be dead or they'd fall out of a window. Or They had power. And anybody who has even been in New Age today, as a matter of fact, I know that we were listening to some New Age things. I'm telling you, these people see things. They see demonic powers. They see what they call their uh, helpers or uh, guides. They see miracles, signs, and wonders. And when we were in the Old Testament, those guys were not idiots. They said, hey, let's stick up a pole and worship it. Yeah, that'd be fun. It wasn't like they were dumb. They were deceived because they would see miracle signs and wonders that these false gods would do. And as a result, they would worship it because of those signs and wonders. I believe they probably heard voices that would come out of those poles. I believe they would see miracles and wonders. The Bible talks about that. Warns us even in Matthew 24 that he says, In the end days there will be signs in the sky to deceive those, even the elect. You, there are going to be things. 
and I know that my son and I have talked about this recently too, it can be frustrating as us, for, for us as Christians sometimes because we want to see that. How come I don't get to see angels all the time guiding me everywhere? I, you know, all I got to do is call on them, and there they are. They get to. How come we can't seem like I pronounce a blessing on them and boom, there it is. Boom, whoop, there it is. Now, bottom line, guys, I think, first of all, I think we do. I think we do see those things. But I kind of tend to think that most people in the church, we don't get to see it like the demonic worshipers do. And I understand why some people say, yeah, well, then I don't want to serve God if that's what, you know. I want to go where I can get the power, where I can see the miracles, where people will submit to me. And I thought, that is exactly what Satan fell to, isn't it? I want the power. I want, to be, I want to be able to do those things. I want to be like God. I want the power. And how many people today fall into that because of it? When I'm talking about authority here, that God gives authority, I want you to understand something. If it is God's sovereign will that He not present Himself that way because He wants you to believe in Him by faith, not by miracles, works, and wonders, because this is exactly what He told the Pharisees, right? He says, you people won't believe without miracles and signs and wonders. He says, but He says, an adulterous generation seeks a sign. God doesn't want our worship because He can appear every time we call His name. He wants you to believe because it's true and His Word be enough. You know His Word is true. And so because you maybe want to have the power, I want to see that and it's just not right if God doesn't reveal Himself to me like He does to these demonic worshipers. That is the spirit of the Antichrist right there. Uh, I'm not going to say that. I think sometimes God does. We see that biblically. He has revealed. But I also believe that there are many people who think they're hearing from God and it's not God. Okay, we've kind of talked about that before when it comes to the, the, the spiritual things that go on in many churches today, I think are from a kundalini spirit, uh, an absolute demonic spirit. And we've kind of... Yeah, well, yeah, don't question it. The... Um, my DVD on a kundalini spirit or a, uh, an unholy spirit in the church, I show some video clips of that, but you can see what we see in many of these charismatic churches today, falling on the ground, laughing, um, in, speaking in tongues, not saying that's wrong, I believe in that, but uh, not all of it's of God. I can show you a side-by-side -side video of um, Eastern religions and demonic worship doing the exact same thing. Kundalini, yeah, K-U-N-D-A-L-I-N-I, -I, maybe. Um, but I'll just give you one of those DVDs. Well, you should have it, the, the unholy spirit in the church. It's just a name of a false god that is any of the Eastern worshiping, or the, the Eastern religions, yeah. But anyway, the point being is I had a talk with my girls in the sense of 
God wants you to worship Him because He is true, not because of signs, miracles, and wonders. An adulterous generation seeks that. And so if God says, my rule book says, I'm not going to appear to you every time you want. I want you to love me by faith. That should be good enough because your reward will be later, not now. And so I don't know if that makes any sense, but when he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, just because the devil has the ability to do miraculous signs and wonders doesn't mean he's in control. Because he won't be able to get people to fall for what he truly is, the ugly. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, the old Hell's Bells thing talked about. You put M&Ms that are candy coated with strychnine in front of some kindergartners and then put just a powder strychnine in front of them. They won't touch the poison. They're going to eat the candy coated poison. And that's what the devil does. Yeah. Yeah, he disguises himself as an angel of light, it says in Corinthians, I believe. So these are the things that you have to watch out for. And another thing, just uh, I think Logan was bringing it up last week in our post-Bible study Bible study. Um, yeah, it was, it's really amazing. We hear a lot of this pronoun stuff, you know, uh, they, them, like Demi Devado or who is, I don't know. I don't even know people's names, but... Who is it? Who is it? Okay, her is now the, her pronoun is they, them. Okay. Well, isn't it interesting that what do we see the devil doing? He says, we are legion in Matthew chapter 8. Right? We are. And it's interesting that all of this transgender, garbage, sin, abomination to God stuff that is going on has so much of that plurality to it. So, it's like, yeah, there, there's an authority that has been given to the devil and it's just like what it says in Deuteronomy 13. God says that if you see someone who comes and shows all these miraculous signs and wonders. And if, if someone appears among you and he does this and he says to you, let's follow other gods, gods you have not known, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer because the Lord your God is testing you to see whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He's testing you. Are, are you going to go for the, the gold right now? Are you going to go for the power? You're going to fall for what Satan did? I want power. Or are you going to, in a humble spirit, say, I want to be a servant of the God Most High, knowing that you will be rewarded later? He's testing you. And I think that's why God does not work the way the devil works today. And I think too many in the church today want God to work the way the devil works. By giving you the experience by giving you the signs and wonders. I'll get off that high horse, but I think that's important to see here. Um, in Genesis 41, we kind of see the same story that we're seeing here in Esther. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, and had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and the people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Same scenario. We have a Christ figure here, Joseph, just like Mordecai is, being, being given power and authority over the whole land, being crowned, and people bowing down before him. Same story. So, not unique. Um, back to Esther. We've covered two verses. Verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Now, I find that interesting. Notice that she's already, in a sense, been given authority. But now she has to beg God, put an end to this. What do we see in Revelation? Remember, before the throne of God, those in Revelation chapter 5, they, they're be, before the altar saying, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, till you bring vengeance for us? Well, it goes on, verse 4, Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleased the king... She said, if he, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. So Haman is gone, but the threat is still there. Why? Because the decree is there, the people are still there. I think if you got rid of the devil right now off of the face of the earth, the threat would still not be gone because there are all kinds of people who serve the devil. And that's why in Revelation, God isn't going to just destroy the devil, but he has to destroy all who follow him when the nations are gathered against us. And also, kind of what you said before, the edict is still in effect. In other words, the law will still kill you. Even without the devil... Right now, all of us, without Yeshua, would be dead because of the law that would condemn you to hell. Because we have broken the commandments of God. And so the edict is still there. Just as without Christ, just like when we took communion tonight, you have to realize that, as it says in Romans 8, 10, somewhere... <laughs> It says that by the body of Christ, by his flesh, the condemnation of the law was taken away. And so without Christ, you would still be under that law and doomed because of it. So we need him. The other thing that I love here is notice how she approaches the king. This is how we approach the king in prayer. We don't demand things of the king. The name it, claim it style of many today. You, you should come with a humble and broken spirit if it pleases God. Which is very interesting because that is the exact opposite of what we see with Haman. 
Do you remember when Haman was coming into the courts to ask for, you know, hey, I, I would like to kill a bunch of people that are in your, you know, kingdom. And then we see later, after the king has gotten this dream, he realizes that Mordecai has saved him and he wants to reward them. So Mordecai is coming in and we see, or not Mordecai, Haman is coming in and he says, what should I do to the, the guy, you know, that the king would like to, to honor? Haman doesn't say, well, if it pleases the king, this is what I would do. He says, do this. He doesn't come with that humble, broken spirit of, hey, if it, if it pleases you, here's a suggestion. He's like, nope, this is the way I want it. And again, he always goes right for the power. It wasn't a material thing. He wanted power. It's the same thing. When we approach the king, it should be, Lord, if it be your will. Not bringing a shopping list, but if this is right and good. I trust you because I don't know, Lord, if this is right and good. So I'm going to trust you. Here's my prayer. And if it be your will, do it this, whatever it is. Even Jesus in the garden said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I believe the third cup of Passover, the cup of redemption. If, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. Even Jesus prayed that way. It is our faith, not in that prayer being answered the way we want it to be answered, but faith in the fact that he is answering in what is right and good. So if I have my mom sick on, in, in her bed, and I say, Lord, I, you know, I command the spirit to leave, or whatever, God might have it's best that she be sick because she needs to go through that process. Maybe somebody else needs to see her go through that process. Maybe he's delivering, delivering her from evil and going to take her from this earth, as Isaiah 57 talks about in verses 1 and 2. No one ponders, the righteous are taken away and no one ponders it in, in his heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. So we have to trust that God knows what's happening. And it's not our will that be done and, oh, that my mother be healed. Because he knows it's better that she die. To go be with him. To be spared from evil. To have someone else in the family come to the Lord because of it. I mean thousands upon thousands if not millions of different scenarios that maybe even have to go down the line four generations to see I don't know but the it's the attitude of our heart and being willing to trust his sovereignty his omniscience and to surrender to whatever that will be rather than us thinking we know what's best for us we persevere in the prayer, but with an attitude of the heart that he's going to answer in the best way. And so you just keep praying. Your will be done. And if his answer is, I'm not going to heal him, I'm okay with that. If the answer is, I'm going to bring healing, I'm okay with that. When you get to that idea then of, well, the reason he wasn't healed was because there was sin in this person's life or you know, some unrepentant sin,
that's a dangerous game of works there, in my mind. It's faith that we have to live by. Faith not just in the healing, but faith in His goodness, that He is going to do what is good. And that that isn't always the way you see it to be done. So faith needs to be broader than just that little narrow answer you're seeing. Faith is in the character and nature of who God is, knowing His authority, His goodness, and His love for you. David was persevering in prayer while his baby was sick. After he died, they were afraid to tell him that his son had died. And they're shocked. It's like, I don't get it. Here you were mourning, you wouldn't eat, and now he's dead, and you get up and you feast? He says, well, I, I thought maybe, you know, God would answer my prayer this way. And if he doesn't, well then, I'm not going to... Uh, he's not going to come to me. I'm going to go to him. I guess that was God's way of answering. God's will be done. So a great example. Yeah, we can't... We're not the ones in charge. We want to be. The devil wants to be. We have to let God be God. All right, verse 6. Continues and it says, For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Ahasuerus replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. Again, notice the Jew. It's interesting that it keeps saying that. Remember, Jesus was the king of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews. I have given the, his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. The king does not draft the document. Someone else does it for him in his name. But anything written in the king's name is true. Just kind of like you if you're going to cast out a demon, you don't do it in your name, but if you do it in the name of Jesus, it has authority. The laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be revoked. I know we've probably all heard that as we study the book of Esther. That is why the king couldn't just say, oh, all right, that edict is no good. We cancel it. They had to come with an edict that would override that. I think it's kind of the same in the spiritual realm. It's kind of like, well, this is why creation is so important. Is people have this attitude, well, if God has got a love, he can just forgive us. No, there are spiritual rules. I don't know what they are fully. I mean, I know he gives us some commandments and things in the Bible, but I don't understand how God operates and why he does the things the way he does. Not my job. But nonetheless, in order for sin to be atoned for, one of the spiritual rules that he has set up somehow, however that works, is there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22. It cannot be revoked. So, you sin, the, the penalty is death. 
There is no overriding that, or I should say revoking that. There is only something that will overcome it. And that is why Jesus came to die on the cross. It's kind of the same type of thing going on here. He couldn't just stay up in heaven and say, all right, I changed my mind, you're forgiven. The law is still in effect. As I said before, it will still kill you. So Jesus has this way of accomplishing that law by superseding it with his blood, if that's the right word. I don't know if supersede is the best choice, but anyway. There you go. Verse 9, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Savan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Well, the one who holds the signet ring is the one who holds the, the commands and the power. It's interesting... The Bible, those are the words of God. I believe that 100%. The Bible, God's word, the king's word, has gone out into the whole world. And now this edict is going out to the world. We see that pictured here. Now before it was from the king and now it's from Mordecai. What do we see? I know God and Jesus are the same. There's the Trinity. I, I believe that. But we see that it seems like in the Old Testament first, even though that is Jesus' words, we see kind of a God thing, right? God's word. And then in the New Testament, it's just like what it says in the New Testament. In the, in the past, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us through Mordecai, you might say, as a picture, Jesus, Mordecai being as a picture here. Because all authority has been given to him, just like we see with Mordecai. John chapter 5, verse 22 says, The Father judges no one. King Ahasuerus wasn't the one judging but has entrusted all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in me who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That's exactly what we see happening here in Esther. All authority was given to Mordecai. King Ahasuerus wasn't going to judge anyone. He was going to trust that to Mordecai. Um, there's an aspect too here. I, I would say in general people in the church view the law of God as something like God the Father and love and peace God the Son, which really isn't the case. But I'd say a lot of people in the church feel that. And it's just kind of interesting that if you don't know the Father, you don't know the Son. And if you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father. You, need to, you have to have both. 
So if you know Jesus and you think it's all by grace you've been saved and you don't need to do anything, you know, works don't matter, then you must not know the Father. You're, you're kind of denying Him. And vice versa. If you only know the commandments of God and you think that you can earn your salvation by being good enough, then you don't know Jesus. So... Verse 10, Mordecai wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. So, just like we just read, Yeshua and the Father are one. Mordecai and Ahasuerus are one. Okay, obviously I understand the parallel picture, not literally there, okay? So, interestingly to me, when Yeshua returns in Revelation, how's he coming? On a horse. We see in Revelation as well, no one can open the scroll that has been sealed except for Yeshua, the lamb that was slain. And so I don't know if there's a connection here or not for sure. Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's interesting to me that he is sealing it with the authority of the king, but Mordecai is the one who has that authority to know what's inside that scroll. And only the lamb who was slain has the authority to break that, to open it, to know what's inside that scroll. John 5, verse 43, Yeshua said, I have come in my Father's name, or 10.30, and I and the Father are one. That's what Mordecai is doing. He's coming in the name of Ahasuerus, in the name of the king. Verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Now on one hand, let's put that in perspective of today's culture. If Christians did that, we'd be like, oh, I don't know, that's really not a Christian thing to do to defend yourself, right? Yeah. It's interesting, kind of like I talked about, I think, a week or two ago, maybe it was post-Bible study, I don't remember, but this idea of justice in the Old Testament is, is fascinating to me. I kind of think that we might have a skewed view of what we as Christians have a right to do. If somebody comes into my house to steal something, do I have a right to shoot them with a gun? Absolutely, I do. And I think that that is throughout the Bible supported that you have every right to defend yourself, to defend your life, the life of your children. Capital punishment, it's right there in the Bible. But today we have this idea, well, we're Christians, we, we just trust the Lord and they want to cut my head off, we'll let them cut my head off. Well, there may come a point where you don't have any control of the situation. Amen, let them cut my head off. But there is nothing unspiritual about defending yourself. Okay, there is a big difference, as we were talking before with uh, Devin there, um, between murder and killing. Thou shalt not murder. 
doesn't say thou shall not kill. But anyway, verse 12, the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Kind of jumping back, one more thing is coming to mind here. Don't forget that when God calls us to Jerusalem, as we can see a number of times in the Old Testament, what is he going to do after we're there? All the nations of the earth are going to come up against those who have been gathered to Jerusalem. And are we just going to feed them soup and chili? No. We ride out and they will be annihilated. I don't know why my brain comes up with the things it does. They will be annihilated. There is an aspect, and that's why so many people today think it's so bad for this God of the Bible to go kill women and children and all of these people in the Old Testament. Hey, that was judgment day for them. When there was good, God says to the Israelites, I will not allow you to go and destroy the Ammonites because the, their sin has not yet reached its full measure. When it does, let me tell you, God is a God of wrath. And there will be women, children, whoever, wiped out, annihilated, just as we see going on here. So there is nothing unloving of God killing all those people in the Old Testament. That is a loving God protecting his children. Opening up a whole can of worms here, I think that's kind of what the rapture is, to be honest with you, a part of it. Is that they are gathered, and that's kind of the Jewish understanding of it, is they are gathered to Jerusalem, caught up to the Lord in the clouds, taken to Jerusalem, and I think that's the seventh trumpet. I'm not going to be dogmatic on any of this because who knows? Uh, who knows, but by putting things together in Scripture, if you go look, the modern idea of what we have for the rapture today within Christianity, you can't find it in the Old Testament not there. What we do find are all kinds of places, like dozens probably, where we see that God will raise a banner, that banner I believe is Jesus, Yeshua, and he gathers the people to, from all nations to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, all of that kind of thing. How are we going to get there? I kind of think it might be that. Don't know, but that's kind of the way I understand it. In case that's a disappointment for some of you, I want you to understand something. But no, I, I'm serious about that. That could legitimately be, oh, who are you coming up to meet? Yeshua. You're going with him. I'll tell you what, if I'm with him, I don't care if he takes me to the armpit of the earth and takes me to St. Louis. Okay? <laughs> or I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be happy because I'm going to be with him and he's going to be leading me and I think we will be under what I have waited for my whole life to be under the rule of a godly king. At least look at this in this part so that the Jews would be ready on that day. There is a time of preparation. 
just kind of like what Tara was saying before. There's some interesting things, and I was trying to figure this out today, and I, I have no answer outside of it's intriguing to me. From the time that Haman made the decree to the time that Mordecai makes the decree is 70 days. That's a very biblical thing. And I was kind of looking through scripture, trying to find some 70 connections, and, and the only one that kind of made sense to me in some ways was Babylon. We see that they were taken captive to Babylon for 70 years. And at the end of those 70 years, they were in a sense, freedom was pronounced. And they were allowed to come back home. That there may be a picture of that. Freedom is pronounced, even though it hasn't been carried out in full here, Maybe that's why. Then we had, I think I figured it was 260 days from the time Mordecai makes the decree for them to be prepared. I couldn't find any real connection between the 260 days. I think there's a reason for that. I, I, I don't know what it is. In Corinthians, again, somewhere, it talks about the bride has made herself ready. It also talks about that in Revelation. That we are to be presented to God as pure virgins, pure and holy before, to him. And so we are right now in that time of being made ready to prepare ourselves. How do you do that? Get your wedding clothes on. What are the wedding clothes? Revelation 19 says the white robes are the righteous acts of the saints. Yes, your works matter. That is how we are preparing ourselves. Not earning our salvation, but preparing to meet our, our groom. Even in Matthew, Jesus said this, that the... Um, Something about the kingdom of God and the righteous take it by force. I can't... The kingdom of heaven suffered violence and uh, the righteous men take it... Or the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and violent men take it... Take it by force, yes. Matthew somewhere, I think. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember the verse, but you should be able to look that up. There's something interesting about that for me. We are not to be soft we are to be taking the kingdom by force. Now, that doesn't mean Islam. That's not what I'm talking about here. It means get engaged in battle. Like we've talked about before, you're not waltzing into the promised land. God always expected Christians to be engaged in the battle, not to have this little quiet personal faith sitting over in the corner, but to be saying, hey, homosexuality, that is a sin. It is wrong. Stop it. And if they don't stop it, say, I'm sorry, you cannot be here anymore. Hand this man over to Satan so that his soul may be saved on the last day. 1 Corinthians 5, if anyone calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral, greedy, an adulterer, all of these sins, willing sins that they're living, living, living in, he says, with such a man do not even eat. Get engaged and live for righteousness. Corinthians 5 says sexual immorality, greedy, idolater. It lists a number of sins. It isn't just homosexuality. Yeah. I know homosexuality does seem to be the go-to, but you're right. It, it's all of them, and we should be holding people accountable to that. Listen, you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Listen, that's enough. Okay, you're, you can go to another church if you want, but for now... Until you're ready, to, I'm going to hand you over to Satan because this is love. Well, I better keep moving on here. Matthew 10, 22 says, You will be hated by everyone because of me. 
These are Yeshua's words. Keep in mind, Haman didn't hate the Jews until he had the encounter with Mordecai. It was, he hated Mordecai's people. It's the same thing. Satan could care less about you, but because you belong to Jesus, he hates you. Um, it's also interesting here, uh, in the Greek version of Esther, remember in the Septuagint, uh, I've got it here if anybody wants to look at it. Esther's a lot thicker. There's a lot more in there. So I was reading. <laughs> yeah, they got pictures and everything. <laughs> anyway, Mordecai sends out a letter, and in the letter, he's offering peace to all nations. And again, that is the grace and mercy of God right there. Jesus offers peace to everyone. He's not saying, all right, I'm king and I'm going to destroy anybody. You know, he's saying, listen, I don't want to destroy anybody. Here is an offer of peace. I have died for you. If you believe in me, you will be saved. And so there is that picture of an offer of peace. That Mordecai isn't just, all right, we're going to get our enemies back. It's with mercy that he offers here. And it's also interesting that Mordecai is ultimately called the Savior in the Septuagint. Just with our picture of Jesus here, connecting him. Um, another part that I thought was interesting too is the letter tells them that they are all under righteous laws. The laws of God are not unrighteous and bad. And it, isn't it interesting that the church today, if, if we want to obey God's laws, somehow that's unrighteous. Somehow that's legalism. No, these are righteous laws when we obey God. But somehow that's been twisted. All right, verse 14, the couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. Um, we kind of talked about this, but the royal horses, again, Jesus coming back on horses, so I'm not going to get into that again. Backing up a little bit here, I want to show you that in verse 13, that this law goes out to every nationality so that they would be ready on that day. Um, Something just to kind of add to that. That it was a declaration of salvation to the Jewish people. This is what the Bible is. It's a declaration of salvation to his people. To, to Mordecai, Yeshua's people. And just like this is going out to every nationality, God's word has gone out to the whole world. And it is for people of all nationalities, of every language, race, nation. And so just to kind of make that connection again, we saw that in the very beginning of Esther as well. In Revelation 16, verse 15, it says, Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 6, about times and dates we don't need to write to you, 
For you know very well that that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will not escape, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. There was a day that was said, there's a day coming. And so this wasn't just for the Jews to be ready to prepare themselves, but it was also for the other people to repent. There were those who were sleeping, who didn't care. And they are going to be the ones that will be destroyed. And I've said this all the time, but I, and I'm sure you guys all know it, but just again, in case anybody's listening to this, this verse is used here in Thessalonians all the time. We don't know when the Lord's coming back. No, there is a day set. The Bible says that. When the day happens. I don't know the exact day. I know the time and season, I believe. Doesn't even give me a year range. But a time and season. But if you don't know when the Lord is coming back, meaning the season... Not the day, not the year. I'm not talking that. But if you think, well, he could come back any second. If that's your mentality, I don't think you understand the Scriptures. If you think that there's no way for us to have an inkling of when the season is, then you are lost. Probably not, because this is very clear. It says, you brothers and sisters are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. So all these Christians, for years and years and years, I've been hearing, it's coming like a thief in the night, we don't know. Not to me. I'm a brother and a sister, and he's not going to surprise me like a thief. So, when we hear, well, people, Everybody's been saying that forever. And they ignore the signs of the times. And let me tell you guys, I think that we are seeing things going on in the world right now that are signs and seasons happening. I can't tell you the Lord's coming back this year or even next year. I, I don't know. But we're seeing signs and, and all these people, ah, oh, people have been saying that forever. That's getting tired and falling asleep. Don't do that. Be ready. It's... Be ready has been a command since... From day one. Yep. Be ready. It may not happen in your lifetime, but let me tell you, the season is now in your lifetime. Verse 13 uh, continues here. Um, the couriers, just at verse 14. The couriers riding the royal horses. Um, Mordecai gave the law, the message... And then he sent people out to go do it. Guess who those couriers are? What's that? Yeah, disciples, us. You have a job to go and tell the people about this message. There is a day of joy and peace and deliverance for you, or there is a day of judgment. One or the other. But we are those couriers. 
that are supposed to take that message of Yeshua out. Romans says this in chapter 10, verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them, without a courier? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we have an important job. Don't forget that. God did not place you on this earth so that you could build a big home and he who has the most toys wins. He puts you on this earth to be a courier to get his message out to people. Don't get distracted. Not saying you can't have a break here and there, but don't get distracted. Verse 15, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Well, if the king is a picture of God, then his city, Susa, perhaps could be a picture of his kingdom, right? Heaven. And note that when this happens, there's rejoicing in the kingdom of God then. Notice as well, who's getting the honor, the crown? Mordecai. Jesus, Yeshua, he gets the glory. And by the way, if you go to, I think it's Exodus 28, we see this is the exact description pretty much that we see the priests have. Okay, they're dressed with the same thing. They even have a crown, they called it a mitre, with holy to the Lord written on it. And so... Uh, just some parallels, anyway. Luke. High priest. Yes, high priest. Which Mordecai is the one that's getting dressed here, and, Morde and Jesus is our high priest. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. Luke 2, verse 8 and following. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And then, skipping a little, it says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So, this is the birth of Yeshua. When God presented Yeshua to the world. There was a joyous celebration going on. When the king presents Mordecai to the world, there is a joyous celebration and feasting that goes on. That same picture here. Verse 16. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In the King James... There's a little better translation than in the New King James even. It says the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. That word light is used in place of happiness. Or in, from the Aramaic, order, it's, it's light is the right translation. They had light. Well, that's important. Because, for obvious reasons, John 1.7 says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Or John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Ephesians 5, 14, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. 
It's Mordecai, a picture of Christ, who is bringing light to the world when he is revealed. It is when the Father revealed Yeshua, Jesus, that the true light that brings light to the world came. And I think that's important. I, I don't think that uh, that should be missed there in Esther, that it really is that they had light. We might be able to say, well, that just simply means you know, happiness in their spirit. I think that was intentional to say, no, this is the word of God, the true light that gives light to all men. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, that they had truth and an understanding of that. Verse 17, just about done here. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews. Whoa, what? what? No. <laughs> yeah. I keep telling people I'm a Jew. Now, some would believe that. Yeah, I know. But they don't look at that as a good thing. I'm not a Jew because of any reason other than I am the faith of Abraham. I have been grafted into the promise of the covenant made to them. We've talked a number of times, a Jew is not what you think of as a Jew today. Those people walking downtown that you might see with the black robes and their tzitzits on, and whatever else, those aren't Jews. A Jew is not one outwardly, a Jew is one inwardly. One who has been circumcised in their heart by the Holy Spirit through Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. And that is exactly what's here. And this is why next week we have to talk about this dual covenant theology mess. If you are in Christ, you are a Jew spiritually. Keep in mind verse 16, we just saw that light had come. The effect of that light, that joy, that celebration was this right here. That many were grafted in, as Romans says. When you adopt a child, if I adopted a Chinese child, does that make me Chinese? Do I take upon the Chinese culture? No. They take upon my culture. When I have been adopted into the kingdom of God, I don't force my culture on them. I take their culture. And this is what the church in general has done. It said, no, we're Gentiles. You Jews better act like us. Right? Yep. That's the attitude. As Romans says, we have boasted over those branches. And so next week is going to be extremely important to go down into that a little bit deeper. Zechariah 8.23, this is what the Lord Almighty says in those days, speaking of the end times, ten people from all languages and nations, i.e. Gentiles, will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Now, I frankly think that one Jew is Yeshua. I also believe this. 
notice what they grab onto. The hem of his robe. The kanaf in the Septuagint, or literally the tzitzit. What were the tzitzits? Those four corners that God gave the Israelites to remember the commandments. In other words, as believers, Gentiles, we are to grab on to the commandments of Yeshua and say, take us with you. And so, very important. We'll touch more on that next week. But... Is there any correlation there to the woman who grabbed the hem of his robe and healed? A big connection. When that woman who has been bleeding for 12 years and she grabs on to the tzitzit, it's literally, again... The hem, the same exact word, the Septuagint, all of it talks about the kanaf. And the reason that is, is because in Malachi, it says that when the Messiah would come, the Son of Righteousness would bring, bring healing in His wings. That word for wings is kanaf again. In other words, when she, she was having faith, that's the Messiah. And she thought, Malachi, if I can touch His wings, if I can grab His seat seat, there will be healing. She knew exactly, and the reason she was saved is not because, oh, I touched his robe. It was because she had faith that was the Messiah. That's what Malachi said. So it was her faith that we're seeing there. I think it's the same thing. Remember when uh, Saul's taking a dump in the cave? We see that he goes in and he cuts off a corner of his robe. It was the seat seats. Remember then it says he was conscious stricken. And usually 10 is a number of the world completeness kind of thing, yeah. And so uh, if you look at Ephraim, I think this could also be an aspect of it. When the tribes of Israel are split where you have Ephraim and Manasseh, there are 10 tribes of Ephraim. They are known as Gentiles, even to this day ultimately, where the two tribes. So I think the 10 men is also a picture of Gentiles because Ephraim had the ten tribes and they became Gentiles. All right, Isaiah 55, verse 7 is my last verse here for you. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That's a good one going back to what we talked about earlier in you know, letting God be God, not us telling him what to do. But this is what happens when you become a Jew. You study God's word. You follow his ways. When you become a Jew, meaning a Christian, you don't get to tell God how you want to be that Christian. He sets the rules. And the more you study, the more you know what is his plan and his rules, not your ways. And I think the church in general around the world has done a pretty good job of trying to tell God how we should be, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable to justify what we want to do. So that is why we need to talk about dual covenant theology because that is exactly what has happened with the church. As we say, the Jews have their thing, but we, the church, we've got our thing. No, there's one thing. One Jew that we need to grab onto the hem of the robe of. 
and that hem are the commandments of God, not for salvation, but I got to say that every time. I know you guys got get sick of hearing me say that, but I I have to. We are modern day Sauls. We want to serve God the way we think it's right, not the way He's telling us. And Saul was not a Jew, biblically by the definition, until he became Paul. And so we, we've talked about it before. You have uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Both of them have the DNA of the Jew, of Abraham. But only one was a Jew. The one who had faith under the covenant, Isaac. Jacob and Esau. Both are Jews did genetically, but only one was considered it. And likewise with us. Okay, the guy walking down the street with its seat seats on, and you, only one of you are going to be Jews even though you may not have it genetically. In Exodus, we see that when Rahab and others, it says, if anyone among you, any foreigner comes in and keeps the Passover, it's interesting that that's listed, because I think that means really a connection to Christ, okay, and follows the commands, ultimately, he says, they will be considered native-born Israel. That's me. I am considered native-born Israel because of my faith in Yeshua. It is hard to explain to people in less than five minutes, but... Because salvation does not come in five minutes. Yeah. And if truth matters, it's worth taking the time. And bottom line, if truth matters, then it's worth your time to put into it, to study, and to learn, rather than, ah, I just, what I know now is fine. I'll, I'm just going to keep what I have. That's too difficult. All right, let's close in prayer here. I've gone a little late tonight, so... Yeah. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just loving us and um, just fulfilling the law for us. We know that the law stood against us until you came. And now, because of you, uh, we have been redeemed and it stands for us. Just as we saw with Mordecai, that the law is now for us. And we are just grateful, Lord, that we have this opportunity to learn, and I pray that you would continue to open up truth to us, that we might share it with others, that it not be just knowledge, but that it be life, that it be light, and that as we share the light, that others would want to become Jews and profess to be Jews, as we saw happened here in Esther. We thank you for this book, and we thank you for your words uh, throughout all of the Bible. May it continue to become a part of who we are. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.